I've enjoyed watching a series over the last uh, couple of weeks now, I think, called Long Way Up. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, two motorcyclists, uh, Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor, who's kind of an actor in Star Wars and so on. Uh, they're riding prototype electric Harley Davidsons from the very base of South America up through Chile, Argentina, uh, Bolivia, all kinds of places. And eventually they're going to arrive at their destination in Los Angeles. And it's an incredible journey, just the scenery. It's amazing to look at the uh, uh, the incredible um, forests and the incredible kind of barren landscapes, uh, the terrain, the mountains, the Andes, all sorts of stuff. And there's challenges, challenges crossing from border to border, challenges uh, at, at the very heart of the challenge for this particular ride is finding enough power points to charge the motorcycles. In fact, they've got a company to install uh, charge points before they even embarked on this program. But uh, I want to encourage you to think about life as a journey. And I wonder if you do. Do you think about your life as going somewhere? Are you headed somewhere? Uh, maybe you've been the kind of person who gets up in the morning and thinks, uh, I'm going to go somewhere, but you've got no idea where. Maybe you're the sort of person who plans ahead. You've got a particular destination that you want to arrive at. You know there's going to be issues getting there. And so you plan as to how to make it. Well, the Bible actually describes a Christian life as a journey. In fact, the very idea of following Jesus is to go on the way. And we see this kind of imagery in Mark's gospel. Jesus is calling people to leave their past and to follow him, physically to follow him. He's going places. And we see here in Mark 10 that he's going to Jerusalem. Um, you can pick it up in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And then if you go to the last verse in this passage, down in verse 52, after Bartimaeus receives his sight, he follows Jesus along the road. And clearly, historically, in Mark's gospel, and it's true in the other gospels as well, Jesus is on a journey, he's an itinerant, he's moving from place to place, he's gathering people and he's inviting people to follow him. And this becomes a key expression of what it is to be Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple who's following in the footsteps of his master. Uh, we see it at the beginning of the Gospels where Jesus calls people to leave the past, to follow him. Uh, we saw it back in chapter 8 after he said that he's going to suffer and die. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me, Jesus is saying, to follow him. Uh, last week we looked at Mark chapter 9 and we uh, got into chapter 10 and we looked at the example of this rich man, this man who kept all the commandments. And Jesus says there's one thing that he lacked. He needed to sell everything he had, give the money to the poor, and then in chapter 10 verse 21, come follow me. Jesus wants people to be following him. That's, that's what it is to be Christian. That's what it is to be part of the kingdom of God, to be on a journey with Jesus following him. And we'll see as we look at this next passage here that that is on view. And, and as we are following Jesus, we need to see where Jesus is headed and, and what the character of following him is going to look like. And Jesus has a number of things to say. Now, we've broken up Mark over the last few weeks, looking at each of the three predictions 
that Jesus makes about the fact that he's going to die and then rise again from the dead. Uh, This section takes us from the third prediction and then explores the issue. And we notice as we look at the prediction that there's increasing detail. Each time Jesus is telling this, there are new things that are being added. Let's hear what he says here. Uh, I'll pick it up at verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. So you've got two responses there. Astonishment from the disciples, those following along behind, there's fear. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Jesus is going to be handed over to the leaders of the people of Israel, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders. He's going to be handed over to them. And then there's going to be some kind of a trial because it says they will condemn him to death. Uh, they're, They're going to consider him worthy of death. Now, this has been their plot and their their plan since back in chapter three. The Herodians plotted together with the Pharisees as to how they might get rid of Jesus, how they might kill him. Well, Jesus says they will condemn him to death, but they don't have the authority to execute him. So they will hand him over to the Gentiles, uh, to the Roman authorities, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. You see the incredible detail here. Delivered over to the Jewish people. They're going to hand him over to the, to the authorities, uh, the Roman authorities. They're going to mock and spit and flog and eventually kill him. He's going to be crucified. Well, this is what Jesus is looking forward to. And he's actually, I'm not saying he's looking forward to this happening in a sense of delight, but he's focused. Um, he's headed in a direction. He's moving towards Jerusalem. These things must happen. Here is his mission. This is the divine imperative at work here. Jesus will not be dissuaded from this journey. His journey will take him to his death uh, at, at incredible cost. And then after that, there will be resurrection. Now, as the disciples are grappling with all of this, we've been seeing their blunders. They just don't understand what it is that Jesus is really getting at. And in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. They're not uh, backwards and comings forward, are they? Um, What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So they've got this idea that Jesus is in for something good. They are expecting the kingdom of God. And Jesus to be ruling, reigning in the kingdom of God. And they want to be his lieutenants. They want a place on either side. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And then these questions, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? What's he talking about here? What is the cup that he's, he's going to drink? What's the baptism that he's going to be baptized with? Well, let's take the cup first of all. Um, At this point in Mark's gospel, we don't know. And we need to read on. Basic practice in understanding the Bible. Keep reading. Maybe things will come to make sense. But lest you miss the week where this happens, the cup here is a symbol, and it's a biblical symbol. You find its origins back in the Old Testament. A symbol for God's wrath. 
his anger, the, the cup of God's anger overflowing. And Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, will pray to God, Father, if there is any way, take this cup from me, but not your will, but my will. Jesus knows that he's about to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is going to his death so that he will bear the sin of others. That's what he's going to do. And so he's saying to the disciples, can you do that? Can you bear the, the wrath of God? Can, can you endure what I'm about to endure? They want to be two ICs to Jesus. Well, can they go through what he's about to go through? And he says, can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And he's had a baptism already. We know that. We saw it back in the early part of Mark where he comes to John the Baptist. And there's a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And, and we know that Jesus doesn't go to be baptized for his own sin. He's identifying with sinners. But now when he talks about being baptized with a particular type of baptism, the, the idea of being baptized in, uh, in the ancient Greek, it, it meant to be washed. That, that was the basic meaning of, of baptism, uh, a washing. And when we see baptism or baptize in the New Testament in English, it just means they haven't really translated the word. They've just taken the Greek word and made it an English word. But when he's speaking here about being baptized with the baptism that he's to be baptized with, it's, it's emphatic. It's a really strong washing that is to take place. Maybe a drowning even. And I take it Jesus is going to go to his death. That will be his baptism. In fact, the New Testament in, in uh, I think it's Romans chapter 6, talks about being baptized into the death of Jesus. See, big things are ahead for Christ. Awful things are ahead for Jesus. And look at their reply. We can, they answered. They don't get it. They really don't. And Jesus says to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Jesus is deferring to God his Father. God has things worked out. He's not going to determine who's where, who's, who's here, who's there, whether they have a, a particular special place in the kingdom. That's not for Jesus to work out but he does say that they will drink the cup and they will be baptized with the baptism that jesus is baptized with how so well, i think it's an example of them being caught up with jesus when he dies jesus is not dying for himself he's taking god's wrath for others sin upon himself and paying the price for it he is dying he, he he's drowning if you like for the sake of others. And so when Jesus is hanging on a cross, he's doing so for people like James and John. And he's doing so for people like you and me if we'll put our trust in him. Jesus' death is not for himself. We are incorporated into Christ, into his death, into his resurrection. Jesus is a substitute for us, a representative for us. I think that's really what it's getting at. Now, it might be also a hint that in the days to come, they too will suffer and die because of Jesus. But there's a uniqueness to what Jesus is doing. He is the one who's dying on behalf of others. And we'll see that even more clearly in the next paragraph. Lastly, there is a very radical call to Jesus' disciples. Pick it up in verse 41. 
When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, so often the the disciples show our basic human desire to be number one. They, they point to the truth that we all want the status. We want the reputation. We want the position of authority. We want to get somewhere. We want to be the ones who are given the credit. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is you put yourself last. The way of the kingdom is you serve others. The way of the kingdom is you view other people as more important than yourself. The way of the kingdom is humility for the sake of lifting up those around about you. That's the way of the kingdom. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And you want to see who does that best of all? Look at Jesus. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus here tells us what he has come to do. He tells us what the trip to Jerusalem is all about. He tells us the heart of his mission. His mission is to give up his life as a ransom for many. Now, I want to focus on this verse. Arguably, I think verse 45 is is the most important verse in Mark's gospel. It helps us to get to the very core of what Jesus is on about. But in order to understand just how immense Jesus' words are here, we need to see them against the backdrop of the Old Testament. Because there's a phrase here that we've heard a number of times in Mark's gospel, but we've not really gone back and had a look at. And it's this phrase, the Son of Man. See, Jesus doesn't arbitrarily just pick up a way of speaking about himself like the royal we. You know, we're going to do this if we get the opportunity, then we might do that tomorrow. No, Jesus is speaking in this kind of enigmatic way. The Son of Man will do this. The Son of Man will go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over. It's Jesus' choice way to speak of himself. And it means something quite simple. That is the son of a human being. That is a human person. But it means far more. In order to understand this, we need to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. And there are a number of visions in the book of Daniel. And there's an important vision in Daniel chapter 7 where the Ancient of Days, it's a picture of God himself seated on the throne, is there ruling. And you get a picture of him in verse 9, the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne. His clothing is white as snow, the head of his hair like the white of wool. His throne with a flaming fire and its wheels all ablaze and all sorts of things. And and. And then um, thousands of people around him and, and the court is seated and the books are opened. And then in the vision, one comes like a son of man. Let me read to you from verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. And he's coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approaches the Ancient of Days and is led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. And all nations and people of every language worshipped him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, what a grand vision that is. Here is God on the throne and a, and a son of man, a human figure, comes to God and he's given authority to rule. Amazing, grand, universal authority over every nation, over every power and all peoples of every language and all nations worship him. And his dominion is everlasting. It, it won't pass away. Friends, here is a picture of the promised Messiah King ruling in the kingdom of God for eternity. And Jesus chooses to use this phrase to describe himself. Now come back then to the picture that we've got. For the Son of Man, this powerful ruler of the universe, didn't come to be served, but he will be served. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why I take it it's so hard for them to understand what's going on. Because if they've got a sense of Daniel 7 in their heads, the, 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 the king, the son of man comes to rule and to have everybody everywhere worship him. How does he possibly come to give his life as a ransom for many? Well, that's one thread from the Old Testament, the Son of Man thread, the, the one who will rule as the Christ over God's kingdom forever and ever, that thread. But there's another thread as well. And to find this thread, we need to go back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah, there are four what are called servant songs, songs about a servant who will come and suffer and die. And the best or, or the most explicit of these servant songs is in Isaiah 52 and 53. I'm not going to read right through this, but let me just pick up some of the language from the end of chapter 53, verse 11. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. See, there's a picture in Isaiah 53 of a servant, a servant who is uh, unimpressive. He's weak and he comes to die. To die as a substitute, the innocent in the place of the guilty. One who comes to take upon himself the, the guilt, the iniquity, the sin, the transgression, all of this language. Everything that we've ever done in opposition to God. There will be this figure who will come and he will bear our sin and he'll die with it. You see, he, he will bear the sin of many and make intercession for us that is plead our case before God and that is the promise of the Old Testament but what the disciples hadn't worked out and 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 what just didn't make sense at this time was how this son of man figure and how this suffering servant figure might actually come together and be predictions prophecies of the one person and yet that's what Jesus shows us that the Son of Man from Daniel 7 will be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. See, this is the servant king. Great song, that one. I don't think we sing it terribly often anymore. 
but but the one who has made this universe, the one for whom the universe is made, the one who will rule over everything, is the one who came and was spat upon and mocked and who was flogged and killed. And on the third day he was raised. You see, here is the spotlight on Jesus. This is why this verse, Isaiah 40, uh, uh, Mark 10, verse 45, is so important. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life for you and for me, to pay the price for you and for me. He, he came to give us everything so that we might follow him in his kingdom. Well, we're not finished with this chapter. Let me take you to Bartimaeus, because I think he's here to remind us of what a model disciple looks like. Then they came to Jericho, verse 46, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. See, how is this guy a model disciple? Well, first of all, he recognizes in Jesus that he is the king who was promised. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one whom God said would rule over all kingdoms. He calls out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. See, face to face with the king of the universe, what else have we to cry? But have mercy on me. We don't come to God on the basis of our own merit. We're not like that rich man back in chapter 9 who thought that he could do enough to be right with God or that he had enough in his uh in his financial resources to be okay. No. No, we know that we need mercy from God. And we come to Jesus saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's his plea. He recognizes something in Jesus and he knows that he needs mercy. He doesn't come as somebody who has lived a good life, who's done everything deserving. No, he's a struggler. He's blind. He's begging. And he knows his heart. He knows he needs the mercy of God. And so Jesus responds. He responds to his faith. Notice in verse 52, your faith has healed you. What, what, what is the faith that we see at work here? Well, he's calling out to Jesus, have mercy. So he's depending upon Jesus. And I think there may also be something here in the fact that he throws his cloak aside and jumps up. Because commentators say that the cloak was probably his tool for begging. That he would be hidden here in his cloak. It would show people that here was a beggar and here was one who was in need. And so in throwing that aside, he's saying goodbye to his former way of life. And now he's committed to following Jesus along the road. 
Father, please have mercy on me. Please forgive me my sins because of Jesus. And please help me to follow Jesus as my King. That's the model of a disciple. Friends, as we look at this passage and as we get to the very core of what Christianity is about, I want to ask you, do you view being Christian as being on a journey? Do you know where you're headed? Are you working forward to your destination? And how are you going about the journey? Because Jesus made it clear that, that we need to go on this journey by following him. That means getting into the scriptures and and learning more about our Lord and Saviour. That means trusting him as to where he's going to take us. That means being dependent upon him for all of our needs. That means recognising that he might call us to go places and do things and do things in particular ways that we might think, oh, gee, is that really in my best interest? And to give up what we think might be in our best interest and to follow what Jesus says. To actually trust Jesus, to go his way, whatever the cost. Jesus said that if we are to follow after him, then if we want to save our life, then we'll lose it. But if we're willing to lose our life for Jesus and the gospel, we will save it. And that's a transaction that we just can't lose, isn't it? Being willing to give up our life in following Jesus. Let me ask you, are you on a journey? Are you following Jesus? Are you going somewhere? Where is Jesus taking us? Well, he's taking us to be with him in glory. But the roadway is a road so often filled with suffering, filled with difficulty, filled with with tough choices, filled with struggle, filled with pain and sadness and sorrow. And yet Jesus says, trust me, come with me, follow after me, walk in my footsteps. I wonder, is it time to take our bearings? Are we headed off on our own journeys? Are we thinking that Christianity is somehow static? Yes, I've become a Christian. Stop. Doesn't matter what I do from now on. I can live my own life now. No, it's not inviting you to come and sit. Jesus is inviting you to come and follow. And and he's calling us to enter into life by following him. Keeping him in front of us. His, his, uh, His way, his direction. His way of life, what he teaches, what he tells us about God our Father, what he tells us about the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, to keep these things ahead of us and to follow Jesus. If you've never come to the point where you follow Jesus, today would be a great day to take that step. And I'd invite you to get on your knees and to ask for mercy like this man and to tell Jesus that you want to follow him from now on. And if you take that step, please tell somebody. Speak to me. Tell somebody you know so that you can get help getting started on the Christian journey. And if you've already taken that step, do you need to recalibrate? Do you need to look at the map again? Do you need to actually get your bearings and and replan and reset? Are you drifting? Are you going this way and that? Are you just following your own journey? Do you need to make changes?